I need to say at the beginning, and I need to say it as often as I can, the Trinity is not an optional doctrine. It's not something you get to say, well, I don't really grasp it, so I guess it must not be that important. That is not the case. It is the only way that the Bible makes any sense, and it's the only way that the gospel itself makes any sense. And I love the doctrine of the Trinity particularly because it is one of the most specifically Christian things about being a Christian. There is no other religion that believes in the Trinity. There are other religions that believe in love and peace and fellowship. And, you know, we do it right and we do it better. But the Trinity is something that everybody else goes, all right, I I don't know if I can even touch that. I love that. It's just mysterious enough to keep us prayerful and worshipful and to remind us that... The Lord's thoughts are higher than your thoughts, and you are not like him, except as he has made you like him. But today is not going to be a systematic breakdown of the doctrine of the Trinity. We're going to do some review, but in the past, I have done a three-part systematic breakdown of the Trinity. It's on the website. Go check it out. I'd be happy to answer any of your questions. Instead, I'd like us to examine how this doctrine affects other things. And today, specifically, we're going to look at Social structures. Why does the belief in the Trinity matter on how we view our relationships to one another? Our social structure in the United States of America was founded on a, on a very dear and near to us idea that we got from our Declaration of Independence. Thomas Jefferson wrote it. He said, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Now, most of us believe that all men are created equal, but it's that self-evident part that is under assault these days. This is a postmodern age. We're questioning everything. So there are those who would say, I don't believe in anything being self-evident. It might be self-evident to you, but it's hundreds of years later. So how can I believe just because, well, it's true. It's self-evident. And most of us want to hold to the doctrine or the belief that all men are created equal, but Can we really say that such a thing is self-evident? Well, it may be to the secularist, it may be to the atheist who knows in their heart they ought to believe this, but we we can ask this question one of two ways, and you pick your way. We can ask, number one, if it's not self-evident, can we still believe it? And number two, if it is self-evident, why is it self-evident? These are the things we're going to look at today, because as Christians, we have a stronger foundation to believe in the dignity and worth of every man than any secularist. Because for us, it might be self-evident, but it is only self-evident because of who God is. Because God himself is a harmonious relationship of co-equal persons. That is who God is. And because of that, we believe that your worth as a person is rooted in the image of God within you, not your status in this life. And that is a profound thing that I am excited to unpack. And I hope will excite you to think, what else might the Trinity be supporting that I haven't thought of before? But in order to back up what I just said, we better remind ourselves of the basics here. So we are going to do a review of the doctrine of the Trinity. And this will be a lot of information, but it's stuff you already believe. It's just a good reminder for you. Why do we believe in the Trinity? The cynic and the secular historian will say, because that's what the dominant faction in the church believed, and they beat up everybody else until they all believed it. That is not the case. We believe in the doctrine of the Trinity 
in order to accommodate all the biblical data that we have. In order to make every verse in Scripture be true at the same time, we have to believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. For example, if you don't believe that God is triune, how do you handle a verse like Luke chapter 3, 21 through 22? Where it says, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. How does that verse make any sense to you if you don't believe in the Trinity? Jesus is being baptized, the Holy Spirit is descending upon him, and the Father is speaking from heaven. So this is why we believe in the Trinity. Let's break it down here. The Old Testament lays down for us a strong foundation of monotheism, that there is only one God. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, the famous Shema, says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Makes it abundantly clear there is only one God. There's all those passages that rail against the false idols of the nations. But the Old Testament also reveals that there is complexity behind that unity. For example, Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. He says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and the Spirit of God was moving over the face of the waters. So we've got God and we've got the Spirit of God. Not only that, but you may know this, the word for God in the Old Testament is the Hebrew word Elohim. It is a plural noun that uses singular verbs. And God is one. You see all these passages about the angel of the Lord and the way that he's spoken to and treated cause you to tilt your head a little bit. Say, if there's only one God, why are we worshiping this angel of the Lord? So there is one God, but it seems to be there's some complexity going on here. Well, then in the New Testament, we see Jesus, who is God and yet is distinct from his Father, and clearly so. John 1.1 says it, the best way to put it, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus Christ with and was. He was with God and He was God. And then you have the Holy Spirit, who is also clearly divine and yet distinct from the others. Jesus said in John 14, I'm going to send you another helper, another like myself. And the Father and the Son and the Spirit will minister to you. It says in Corinthians that the Spirit is able to know the depths of God because the Spirit of God knows God. Who else can know everything about God except the Lord himself? So you have the Old Testament, monotheism, but in the New Testament we have Jesus and the Holy Spirit that seem to flesh out that complexity that the Old Testament was hinting at. And then we ask ourselves, all right, but is that what the early church believed or did we just make this up? Well, it is what they believed because countless times in the New Testament you have what we call Trinitarian formulae, meaning the way they speak has that Father, Son, Holy Spirit rhythm to it. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Once you see a few of these, you can't unsee them. They're everywhere. Matthew 28, 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So we have one God. But we have three distinct persons who are that one God, the Holy Trinity. And as our good buddy Athanasius put it, this is the summary statement of his creed. We worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. And I wish I had more time to talk about Athanasius because if there were men that God used to keep his church on the right track, he is right up there at the top. There was a point where he was like the last pastor 
who still held to the orthodox doctrine of the gospel and of Jesus Christ. He had to flee and hide among the monks in the desert for a long time. He was the one that articulated the Trinity in such a way that we still believe it today. The Nicene Creed had been given, and I guess I am going to talk about Athanasius a little bit, but the Nicene Creed had been given, and it was correct, but there were many in the church that didn't feel like it, it fully fleshed out what they believed, and so there were some that didn't want to sign up for the Nicene Creed, and there were others that did. And in between them came the Arians, who didn't believe that Jesus was God. They believed that Jesus was a created being, and the Holy Spirit wasn't even personal. And the Emperors got hold of it, and it, and it led almost to the, the collapse of the church. Meanwhile, there's Athanasius in the desert, who is able to write a little book called On the Incarnation, which for all the bishops and all the pastors in, in the empire, they saw the way that he laid it out, and they're like, okay, I can get on board with that. So he comes back from exile, calls an illegal council of bishops, and they reestablish their commitment to what we now call the Trinity. And so that phrase, we worship one God in Trinity, Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance, that is still to this day the way that we understand what the Trinity is. God is one and God is three. And it's good to have that and in there because in the songs, and this is fine, we always say God is three in one. Now God is equally one in three. That's why I like saying God is three and one because that makes us go, well, something can't be three and one, ah, but God can. And he gives us two errors to avoid here, and, and these are important to remember. Number one, we do not confound the persons. Confound means to confuse or to mix up. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are distinct persons. And that word is a Latin word, persona, which means a distinction. And of course, in this case, it is a personal distinction. You read through your Bible, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit each have their own intellect, their own emotions, and their own will. They are not somehow fused together where they are not distinct from one another. We must not confuse them and ignore the threeness of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We can do this sometimes by using the blanket term God, which is okay, but by so doing, we muddy the waters and we forget that we are worshiping a threeness as well as a oneness. That's confounding the persons. Number two, we do not divide the substance, which means only God has the nature of God. You have the nature of a human. Your dog has the nature of a dog, right? That is what the old language would call your substance or essence. Maybe you've heard it called that. This comes from the Latin word substantia. The definitive quality of something. There is only one being in all of existence who has the substance of God, and that is the Lord himself. So we don't divide God into three separate parts. I try very carefully to use the word distinct instead of separate when I refer to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Because we are not polytheists, as the Muslims would accuse us of being. We do not deny the oneness of God. We do not confound the persons. We do not divide the substance. Is this difficult to grasp? Yes, but it is not impossible. And I want to make sure I say that to you as your pastor because I've heard it said before, you'll never get the Trinity, just accept it and move on. No, you can get this. You can get this. And being able to articulate it is the first step, that God is three and God is one. Three persons, one substance. Maybe you grew up with the word essence. That's fine too. It means the same thing. But ultimately, it is an act of faith and it is an act of worship to accept the doctrine of the Trinity. 
We believe that this word in front of us is true and that it has accurately revealed who God is. And that in acknowledging and worshiping God as he is, we are humbling ourselves before him. We're not coming to God and say, that doesn't make any sense to me. God is not really interested if it makes sense to you. He's telling you what is true. This is why, among other things, the Bible says, you cannot see God face to face and live because God is so much higher and above you. Moses heard God announce his name and he fell down on his face and couldn't get up. It it should be comforting to us that our God is greater than we are. I find it delightful to contemplate the Trinity. And I think that we ought to seek as Christians, it should be a constant goal for us to try to be more Trinitarian in our language, the way we talk about God, get that Father, Son, Holy Spirit rhythm going. To use the term Trinity more often. In our preaching, too, and I I strive my best to do this, especially when I come to the end of the message. I always try to incorporate how all three persons of the Trinity are involved in what we're talking about. And in our worship, too. And I will say that for as much as we criticize modern worship, there are some fabulous Trinitarian songs being written. We sang a lot of them this morning, which is a pretty cool thing to me, because I think what's happening is as the, the world shrinks, so to speak, and we're coming in contact with Christians all over the world, there's a lot that we don't share in common, but there are things that we do share, and the Trinity is one of them. And so the church sings about it. And we ought to, to do more of that, to be Trinitarian, not just in our doctrine, but in our practice, as you would say. Three and one. Now, what I just reviewed is called the big word ontology of the Trinity. Ontology comes from the Greek word ontos, which means being, the nature of something, the ontology of something. The nature of the Trinity, three and one. But there is another side to Trinitarian doctrine that we need to understand, which is called the economy of the Trinity. Don't think money now. Economy means operation of the Trinity. So we have the ontology, the being of the Godhead, and the economy, the operation or the working out of the Godhead. This describes how the Trinity works, what each person does. Each person of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, has a role to play within the Trinity and in executing God's ultimate plan for his universe. Now, as we discuss the economy of the Trinity, what we always have to be careful to do is to avoid that error of dividing the substance. We talk about them as three separate persons. They are three distinct persons. They are still one, but it's important for us to recognize this and understand it. God the Father is what you might call the sovereign of the Trinity. From him, the Son is begotten, the Spirit proceeds, And the Father's duty is to hold all authority, to command the universe. Sometimes we refer to the monarchy of the Father, meaning the the authority and rulership of the Father. In John 5, 19, remember Jesus said, the Son can do nothing of himself, but only what he sees the Father do. That's the Father's role. He commands from heaven. Then God the Son is what you might call the representative of the Trinity, He was the one who was made flesh to actualize the eternal plan of God, to be the sacrifice on the cross. And because of that, he has been given all authority from the Father. Hebrews chapter 1, right, talks about how he is the the revelation of God, that he's been seated at the right hand of the Father after making intercession for sins. 
So the son's job is to act out and to, to represent the father on the earth. And number three, God the Holy Spirit is, here's my favorite word, the agent of the Trinity, meaning the actor of the Trinity, the doer of the Trinity. He acts in the world to execute the will of the Father and to glorify the Son. It is the Holy Spirit whom you encounter every day. We tell our little kids, you're going to ask Jesus into your heart. Well, if we want to be pedantic, you're asking the Holy Spirit into your heart. But the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ, and we worship Trinity in unity. So, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Here's a metaphor. If it helps you, then great. If the Trinity were to be building a building, God the Father would be the one who says, I want there to be a building built right over here. The Son would be the one who draws up the plans, brings everybody together, handles the budget, and the Holy Spirit would be the one up on the scaffolding, drilling the screws and hammering the nails. That's how the Trinity works together. For example, this is a verse about the Holy Spirit, but I think it reveals in a lot of ways how the economy of the Trinity works. John 16, verses 13 through 15. Jesus said, When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is Mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. That is such a profound Trinitarian section there. We've got Jesus, the Spirit, and the Father all together. But he says, the Spirit will come. He will take what is mine and declare it to you. And what is mine is from the Father. You can see how they are operating together with distinct roles and purposes within the Godhead. The Trinity is constantly at work. And the Father and the Son and the Spirit have a different role to play in their unity. This involves mutual submission to one another. It is the most profound example of servant leadership. So to speak, they are the perfect team. Nobody is ever fighting to be greater than another. None of them ever resents being less than another, which would be incomprehensible because they are Trinity in unity. As Jesus said in 1 Corinthians 5.28, another example of this, or as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5.28, when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. I love that. He says the Son, Jesus, has been given all authority, but at the end of days, he will give that authority back to the Father who gave him that authority in the first place. He says that God may be all in all. This is how the Trinity operates in the world. The Father sent the Son. The Son was made incarnate by the Holy Spirit. And then the Holy Spirit led the Son through life in submission to His Father. Now that the Son has ascended, He has sent the Spirit with His Father. And the Spirit's job is to glorify the Son. And the Son has all authority by the Father, but someday He will return that authority to His Father. That's the operation, the economy of the Trinity, that they work together as one. And yet, here's the key. We know that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, as we read this morning, are co-equal, co-eternal. They are equal in their substance. The value of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit is not determined by the role they play within the Godhead. They are a harmonious hierarchy in the economy of the Trinity. 
They are equal in glory. They are equal in deity. When we speak of the ontology in their being, in their nature, they are one. They are equal. And yet in the economy, they are in submission to one another. I hope you realize how monumental that understanding is. That changes everything. And you might say, why is that? You just kind of explained the gospel a little bit in Trinitarian terms. I don't see what difference that makes. Well, you are made in the image of God, are you not? Genesis 1.26, God said, let us make man in our image. Again, more complexity in the unity of the Godhead. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. So you were made in the image of God. Now, you are not triple personed as God is. My son Micah finds that the most exciting thing in the world, that God is three persons at once. He's like, oh, that's so cool. And we get older and we're like, I don't know if I can accept that, but the faith of a child, right? It's wonderful. You are not triple personed. When God created man, he said, instead, I will create billions of separate persons who all have the same substance of humanity. This means that in your soul is the reflection of who God is. And not only in you, but in every person you have ever heard of or ever encountered. Now, when it comes to the ontology of this doctrine, we get this. That every person has worth, every person has dignity. Psalm 139.14, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. And that's true. You know this. It's not news to you. But here's where I want to spend most of our time. I want to take... The ontology of man, the being of man, which is to be in the image of God. And I want to apply that to the economy of man, to the operation, to the working, to the roles and hierarchies and social structures of man. Because we also exist in hierarchy among one another. There is structure. There are roles that we play. And our role in the structure is usually a point of either resentment or pride, is it not? We tell ourselves, I'm on top because I deserve to be on top. It's really interesting. The folks who are on top of whatever it is always believe that the system is fair because I'm at the top, obviously, right? I've made it. I deserve to be here. And if you're not at the top or if you're not happy where you are, you are resentful because you say, I deserve better. I'm better than this job. I'm better than this relationship. This system is not good for me. In both of those instances, whether it's pride or bitterness, what has slipped in is the belief that your role, your occupation, your job, your status is a reflection of your value as a person. Well, I don't believe that. Yeah, but sometimes we walk and talk and act as if we did believe that. Now listen, knowing what we know about the Trinity, we absolutely must reject that idea. Because we know who God is and how God works. Within God himself is loving submission and leadership. And we know that the actions they take do not determine their worth. We know that to be true. And if we are made in the image of God, then it is true of us also. Look at how Paul spoke to the apostles in Jerusalem. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 6, he was there because he was going to start doing ministry, and the apostles wanted to make sure that his doctrine was right. So it seems like a good thing. But Paul says that when he was in Jerusalem, from those who seemed to be influential, and he has a little parenthesis here, what they were makes no difference to me. 
because God shows no partiality. Paul was talking to James and John and Peter, the brothers of Jesus, the apostles. And he says, it doesn't really make a difference to me what they are because God doesn't care what they are. In the image of God, you are not defined by your role in the home, your role in society, even your role in government. Everyone has value and dignity regardless of what they do, regardless of how much money you have, regardless of the titles that you accumulate. You yourself may become rich and powerful. You may lose everything, and you have not gained or lost one stitch in God's eyes. This is why God cannot stand it when people lord it over one another. God himself doesn't even do that. The Father himself does not lord it over the Son, and the Son does not lord it over the Spirit. When the Spirit led the Son, he did not lord it over the Son. So the Lord sees us standing over each other, letting each other know who's boss, and it makes him furious. He says, what a corruption of who I am and who I've made you to be. James chapter 2, verse 1, he said, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. He says, how can you claim to be a disciple of Jesus Christ and yet you're going to be partial? You're going to prefer some people over other people. You're going to judge people based on what they do or how much money they have or where they come from. This is also the other side of it now. Why we are not to be rebellious or arrogant if we are, as you might say, low status. Because your status means nothing. It's not that it doesn't matter if you're rich. It doesn't matter if you're poor either. Your status means nothing. It adds or takes away nothing from your soul. But sometimes we're on the bottom. We want to get all angry and rebellious. And we want to say, don't they know that I'm made in the image of God? It's not fair that I'm down here. The Lord says, no, it's not that it's not fair. It doesn't matter that you're down there. If Jesus Christ could lay aside his glory and be born in a stable, if the Father can give all authority to his Son and not somehow feel threatened by that, if the Spirit can first lead the Son and then step back and submit to the Son, we have no right to grade each other that way, as if we are somehow better than God and deserve to grasp to what we deserve. Because all men are created equal. Isn't that a better foundation for that belief? Well, self-evident, just makes sense. How about the fact that God himself is love and hierarchy in harmony? Doesn't that make a better foundation for the belief that all men are created equal? I think you can even see in some of what Jefferson wrote there, the assumption of the faith that he himself didn't even really hold. He says, well, if everybody knows that. It's like, well, you go to India, they don't know that. They believe in a caste system. Not all men are created equal. Not only am I richer than you, I'm better than you. You're poor because you did something wrong. You're sick because you did something in a previous life. And everything is organized according to value. But that's not the way the Lord does it. So let's look at how this lives out. That's a, that's a wonderful doctrine, but let's apply this and, and try and make ourselves uncomfortable if we can. Because it's nice to say it's another thing to like, oh, you're talking about me. Oh, okay. First of all, let's look at the church. God has established hierarchy in his church. And it is important. It, when God establishes leadership, when God establishes submission, it matters. But it does not extend to the value that God places on the human soul. 
Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. There is leadership in God's church. People want to say foolish, very American things like, well, God never established authority in his church. Oh, yes, he did. He started out with the apostles, and Paul went around establishing what? Elders in every church. There's going to be structure in God's church. But that said, pastors are not to dominate the body. We're not to be like Diotrephes, who we read about in 3 John. It says, who loves to have the preeminence among them. I just love being the pastor better than everybody else. And also the parishioners, those who are in the church, are to respect their leaders and submit to them. And it says in Hebrews 13, not to make it difficult to lead. That's the role. Like we are, the pastors are to lead, and those who are in the church are to submit and to follow. But that does not mean that the pastor is somehow greater in spirit than those who hear him teach and submit to his leadership. Right? God is not a respecter of persons. And whenever the church has begun to believe that being in charge makes you a better person before God, things get bad. And there are going to be a lot of so-called pastors that stand before God someday and the Lord's like, you did not understand anything of the leadership that I taught you to exercise. Nor does it mean that those who are submitting to their pastors are somehow on the outs looking in. There's some who feel like to be a real good Christian, you got to be in ministry. That's not true. That's absolutely not true. You, are, you do what God has called you to do. But sometimes folks will sit there and they'll hear that pastor preach and like, I could do better than that. And I saw him make that decision. He's not going to, it wouldn't fly in my business, I'll tell you that right now. And they want to feel like they've got to shoulder their way in and, and establish themselves in the church. Because, well, it's not like I'm worse than him. Well, no. But we're a body. Paul said we are the body of Christ, and every part has to work together and do its job. The hand is not greater than the foot. The eye is not greater than the ear, Paul would say. But every part has its job to do. We have to fit together to make a Christian whole. And as Paul said, do it in such a way that it's a delight for all of us to do that. That's one example. Secondly, let's look at marriage. God has established hierarchy in marriage, which must be honored. But it does not determine who is more or less valued before God. Ephesians 5, 24 and 25 says, As the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Oh, and we just squirmed in our spirit. In everything? That's what it says, isn't it? And then verse 25, husbands, love your wives. How much? Like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I've got to love her to the point of being stretched out on a cross and nails going through my hands and my feet for her sake. That's the structure God has established. Wives are to submit to their husbands. Husbands are to lead and to love their wives as God has commanded. Well, we just made that up. Well, it's what the Bible says. Well, they were making it up in the Bible. Well, then you have placed yourself in an authority over God, and we now need to have a different discussion. But here's the thing. A wife's submission is not a mark of her lack of value. Nor is the husband's leadership a mark that God just thinks he's better than her. And there will be folks that will say, well, I'm smarter than him, and I make more money than him, therefore I should be allowed to lead. 
But that's not what the Bible says. Your submission does not mean that you are less valuable or less worthy than him. That is the economic role, using that term, right? The economy of our relationships with one another. It's a testimony of the church in Christ. I submit to my husband. Why would you do that? Because the church is in submission to Jesus Christ. And I love the Lord that much. It's a reminder of Trinitarian harmony. Why do you love that woman? She doesn't deserve that kind of love from you. I've seen the way she talks. She said, because I serve a God who only leads through love. And I serve a Jesus Christ who died on the cross for me when I was still a sinner. So I'm going to love her even before she comes around to ever respecting me. How about a third example? Let's look at society at large. Let's talk about government, as they say. Like, all right, this was fun, but now it's not fun anymore, Tyler. Well, we're going there. God has, in fact, established order and structure in society. Even, I'm not going to get into this today, it seems among nations, if you read the Old Testament, that every nation has its time. But where you stand in the pecking order of society does not speak at all to the inherent worth of you as a person. Which is why Paul can write something like this in Romans 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. He said, oh man. <laughs> well, why though? For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. Well, that doesn't apply when there's a bad ruler. Do you know who was the ruler when Paul wrote that? Caesar Nero, the one who burned down Rome and blamed the Christians for it. The one who dipped Christians in hot candle wax and lit them on fire in the streets. That's where the term Roman candle comes from. The one who threw Christians to the wild beast and stripped them of their rights. And Paul says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Why? Because rulers, governors, even down to peasants and servants, the order is God-ordained. We should not view being powerless as an insult to our dignity. Can I say that again? You being powerless is not an insult to your dignity because your status determines nothing. And we love to say that when we're aiming upwards, right? Oh, you're the president? You think that makes you better than me? Well, no, of course not. But you could just as easily look down and say, Yo, you're, you're not the president. You think that makes you better or worse than me? Of course not. This is how God has determined to order his world, as there is order within himself. Your actions that you take, your status, your vocation, they do not bestow value upon you, and they cannot violate your value as a person. They cannot. It was fascinating to me when I was driving for 1-800-GOT-JUNK, and I would show up and I'd be wearing my blues and I'd be have mud all over my pants from when I was at the landfill and I probably smelled a little bit. And I was looked at very differently in places sometimes that I went all the time. And it would fascinate me. I'm like, this is so interesting because if I were to come here dressed up in my Sunday best and they found out I was a pastor, they'd be like, oh, well, you can take the seat right here, sir. But meanwhile, they're like, oh, you gonna, how long are you going to be in here? I say, how long are you going to be in here, buddy? <laughs> it's funny. But... That's just a reminder that what you do does not determine who you are. Now, it's easy to say. It's much harder to live out. Can you accept the fact that your poverty or your submission is not humiliating for you? Can you accept that? Or that someone else's poverty is not humiliating for them? But that your value lies elsewhere? 
Ephesians 5.21 says that we are to be submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Hear me when I say this. It is an insult to the Holy Spirit to imply that submission is somehow demeaning to your soul. Because the Holy Spirit himself is in submission to the Father and the Son. And if it's demeaning for you, then it is somehow demeaning for the Holy Spirit. Or for Christ himself, who emptied himself and took the form of a servant. Now folks will hear that, and they'll object. Because our pride chafes against that idea in various ways. There's a number of different ways that we cannot like this. We feel that our status should speak about our greatness and our worth more than those others. We get that Muhammad Ali attitude. I'm the greatest of all time. And you can tell because I've won all these championships or whatever it is. Say, well, I've made all this money, so people should know that I'm, I'm that kind of person. I belong up here. I belong on top. People will say things like this. People who say the system is unfair are just the people that are no good at it. Athletes will say this a lot, right? It's only hard for those that aren't good enough to do it. Or people that make a lot of money, they say, it's easy to make a lot of money. Anybody who can't be up here with me, they just don't have the discipline. They don't have the effort. They don't have the morals to get up here with me. We feel that it should speak about our greatness because we are high status and we want it to reflect our greatness. Or we feel that our lack of status somehow demeans us. And this is interesting because we don't act or say, I'm a lower person because I have less status. I make less money or whatever it is. I have a boss instead of being the boss. We reveal that we believe that it's demeaning by being disorderly. When we say things to our boss like, you can't tell me what to do. And it's like, yes, I can. I'm your boss. Nobody made you work here. You came and filled out an application and said, I'll work here for you. And say, you know, you think you're better than me? And you go, no. I don't think I'm better than you. So why are you so paranoid about this? Because you are afraid that I am better than you by being higher than you. Or you are afraid that you are worse as a person because you're lower. And so we become disorderly. And we like to show that nobody can be on top of me. Nobody can be over me. Nobody can lead me. But that's not the Christian's way. God himself is deferential even in his divinity. The Father has given all authority to the Son on heaven and on earth. He's not worried about it. He's not afraid. The Holy Spirit exists to glorify Christ, not himself. Which is why in James 1 verses 9 and 10 he said, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because he says the end is coming and the person that was poor in this life is going to come to heaven and be like, wow, I've really been lifted up. But the rich person who's high above everybody else is going to get to heaven and they're going to be like, wow, I've lost everything and I'm down with everybody else. But he says both should boast in that. Isn't that fascinating? That that is the most glorifying thing to the Lord to see that all men will be treated before God as God sees them. The end is coming. And those who are striving for status in this life are going to be sorely disappointed when they stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Because it's not going to amount to a hill of beans how much money you made or how powerful you were or what kind of monuments they're building for you down there on earth. What did Jesus say? If you want to be great, you must become the least. If you want to be great in my kingdom? Learn to be the servant of all, he said. Because when you stand before Christ, right, what, what's that... I believe it was C.T. Studd that said it first. 
Just one life will soon be passed, and only what's done for Christ will last. Now, the world objects to this. So there's that internal thing. There's the pride that we as Christians have sometimes. And the world objects to this differently because they do not believe. And so they see this whole thing as a scam. They say, you're only teaching that because you want to keep people down. You're on top and you want to stay on top. This is why those who hold to various academic critical theories, especially feminism, are ardent opponents of the Trinity. In Christian academia, so-called Christian academia, let's say theology circles, the ones who are writing and advocating the most to dispense with the doctrine of the Trinity are feminist theologians. Because they know that if we believe in the Trinity, and we believe that it is possible for there to be submission and yet equal worth, then their whole raison d'etre, the whole reason they're alive, is blown to pieces. Because for them, submission equals being demeaned and being lower and being less valuable. But the Trinity teaches us that that's not the case. So in order to accomplish their agenda, they've got to go after the Trinity first. For them, there can be no submission in the Godhead. And this is not because they've found some new biblical data. This is because they cannot comprehend that submission does not equal degradation. Liberation theology also rejects the Trinity. You've got all kinds of liberation theology. You've got queer liberation theology, black liberation theology, Hispanic liberation theology. Go around the world, all different tribes. And essentially, they're, they're more political movements than anything else. But th these are those who reject, as they call, the savior narrative in, in the gospel, which is like all of it, you know. But they say that you, you've got to get rid of the Trinity because what the Trinity teaches people to do is accept their lot in life. And we can't allow that. We've got to get up there and smash the structure and change the way it's built up and change someone's lot in life. And their whole reason for being is to teach people not to be okay with their lot in life. But the Trinity stands in the way of that. And so they've got to try and tear it down. Now, is there a place to advocate for better laws and better systems? Yes. But for somebody to believe that poverty or disenfranchisement or even slavery equals a lack of humanity is repulsive to me. I, I, I cannot tell you how angry this makes me because we say, no there's, no, there's no substantive difference between the poor and the rich. They say, you're only saying that because you're rich. Like, so are you saying that there is a difference? You're saying that there is a difference between the poor and the rich? Maybe this is why a lot of the people that advocate for these things, it's always the rich people. It's always the rich folks that come in because they see these poor, downtrodden people and they treat them as if they're not fully human, which is why the way sometimes they speak to those who are poor, or those who are advocating for some right or other, they don't really listen. I'll tell you what you need because they have this implicit belief that being on top does make you better and being down there does make you worse. Therefore, I'm up here, so shut up and listen to what I have to say. And I find that absolutely repulsive. Instead, what we believe is that the gospel dignifies every man and woman on the planet by its revelation of God. If Jesus Christ was willing to die, not just for kings and for emperors, but for slaves and for homeless people, then how can we say that there's really a difference between the two? Which is why in Colossians, Paul would write two different verses here, 3.22 and 4 verse 1. He says, bondservants, Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, 
not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. And then in chapter 4, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. The Bible does not set out to break apart the structure. The Bible causes you to reevaluate your place in the structure and realize that your place in the structure doesn't matter. This life is short. It's going to be over soon. And you've been made in the image of God. So your master cannot take away anything from your value as a person. And your servants are not beneath you, but you should treat them justly and fairly. Because our souls have been bought by the blood of Jesus, we find joy even in our servitude. There were missionaries, Moravian missionaries, that would sell themselves into slavery so that they could go to the Caribbean and preach the gospel to the slaves there because it was illegal otherwise. Say, how could you give up your freedom for that? Because the gospel's worth more. And those people deserve better. I mentioned C.T. Studd a minute ago. He was a world-class cricket player. And he was going to go on and play at the global level and be renowned and be rich and be powerful. He gave it all up to be a missionary to China and then to go to Africa. This still happens today. We do this, don't we? We give up what is possible for the sake of the Lord. And the world looks at that and says, what a waste. But for us, it's not a waste. Because it doesn't matter if I'm up here or down here. If I, if I make money, God be praised. If I lose it all, what did Job say? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And I want to add this too. Those that want to come in and say, Christianity teaches people. Here's an example. Here's a specific one. Christianity teaches slaves to obey their masters. So we've got to get rid of Christianity if we want to get rid of slavery or the legacy of slavery. I'm going to say this. This is the doctrine that got rid of slavery. This is the gospel that broke the chains. Because this didn't happen anywhere else. And the world can look back and say it should have been done differently. But the fact remains that what did happen was that it was the people that were most familiar with the gospel that could not abide the fact that they had brothers and sisters in bondage. Because the gospel plants these seeds in our hearts, doesn't it? He says, hey, treat your, your slave, treat your master well, because you're all equal before God. And as that grows up and starts to bear fruit and blossom, we say, then should we really be doing this anyway? I don't think we should. And then that separation happens. And now the Lord starts to bring us all together as one. Because if you believe that your slave is just as ontologically valuable as you, then why are we doing the economy this way? It's not fair and it's not right. So, well, that doesn't seem like it would work. It did work. That's why we're here. That's what the Lord used. And everybody claimed, well, I believe that too. I believe that everybody is equal before God, but they deny it by their actions. Because the second they get down below somebody else, they lose their mind. Because I deserve to be up there. But as Christians, we actually believe this. You know, let's pick on feminists again. They'll say, a woman should be able to do whatever she wants, but if she chooses to be a housewife, it's really kind of demeaning to her. And it, it, it's... it's bad for the rest of the sisterhood who are taught that they, they shouldn't go out and accomplish more things. We come out and we say, we don't believe that there is any ontological difference between the man that goes out and works 60 hours a week and the woman that stays home and, and keeps the house. We actually believe that. Actually believe it. And so the world is like, we can't believe that anymore. We say, our beliefs haven't changed because God is still God and the gospel is still the gospel. So we submit to the government. We submit to our husbands and our pastors. We lead well when we are masters and fathers and kings because we believe that that is true of God first. 
And we're trying to be like God because we are made in his image. And if Jesus Christ was able to say in Luke twenty two forty two, 42, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. I would never be so arrogant as to say, my will be done. Because if my will isn't done, that's just fine. Because it's before the Lord that I stand or fall. And this is where we're going to return to the ultimate example of Trinitarian harmony, the cross. You want to see this lived out? You see it right there on Calvary. The Father loved the world and determined to save them by sending His Son. The Son submitted to His Father and became flesh to die upon that cross. The Holy Spirit actualized the plan from start to finish by overshadowing Mary so that the Son would be made incarnate, leading Him all the way up to Calvary and raising Him from the dead, Romans 8.11 says. On the cross, you see the death of the Son, the ultimate humiliation that turned to the ultimate glorification when He ascended to the right hand of the Father. Hear me. Jesus Christ knew His value would not be jeopardized by joining Himself to man or by living a carpenter's life, or even by dying on a Roman's cross. He knew who he was could not be touched by those things. So he did not see it as something that he needed to avoid. We ourselves ought to follow that example and view ourselves and each other the same way. Will you turn to Philippians chapter 2 with me? This will be where we bring it home. This passage is, is too good to cut short, especially today. What attitude ought we to be cultivating from learning these things? The one we're going to read about in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Paul writes this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. What does that mean? to be held on to so tightly that nobody can take it from you. Jesus knew what his status was, but he did not see that status as something he had to maintain. But he willingly let go of that glory. He emptied himself of his privileges. He retained his deity. He was still God, but he became man, born in the likeness of a servant and humbled to the point of death, even death on a cross. Status from the right hand of the Father to buried in a borrowed grave. But because of that, the Lord has highly exalted him above every name, and it will be to his Father's glory. So are you grasping at your status, holding on to it? Nobody's going to mistreat me. Nobody's going to take this job from me. Nobody's going to violate my rights. Nobody's going to... On it goes. Or are you fully prepared to accept humility or exaltation, knowing that those things are so transient, you're up one day, you're down the next. The world likes to affirm to itself. They'll say it. We're more than what we do. I'm more than my bank account. I'm more than my job. 
but then they live as if they defined themselves by those things. High or low, defined by my action, my title, my bank account. But you and I have the most profound theological underpinning for the worth and dignity of every person on earth. It is self-evident only because God himself is that way. As Athanasius said, we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. God is one and God is three. The persons are ontological equals in economic hierarchy. And we are made in the image of God. We are also ontological equals in an economic hierarchy. So do not allow yourself to believe that the things you do somehow affect your value, positive or negative. I lost my job. I'm worth nothing. I got a promotion. I'm somebody. Neither of those things affects your soul. You need to be a servant leader if you're on top. Like the father is a servant leader. And you also need to be a servant servant. Sometimes we're really good at being servant leaders, but the minute we're a servant servant, we get angry. Gail Irwin said, everybody likes being a servant until somebody starts treating you like one. Because you know that your dignity comes from the Lord, not from yourself, not from your boss, not from your wife or husband. If you're looking to get it from other people, you're, you're going to be disappointed. Because people don't care. They're not, they're not going out of their way to make sure that you feel good about yourself. And so we create these societies and these Saturday morning cartoons to make sure everybody feels special. But it doesn't work because why? Why am I special? Oh, it's self-evident. I don't think it is because I feel pretty bad about myself right about now. And we celebrate the rich and we, we don't really say much about the poor. So how can you say that? Well, you come into the church of Jesus Christ. And when we say to our kids, like that old VeggieTales thing, God made you special and he loves you very much. We've got a reason for it. A profound, deep reason for it. As I said before, we actually believe it. <laughs> if we could grasp this, if we could really grasp this, our struggles over rank and position would be over. We'd be able to love each other without scheming and fighting and wondering if that person isn't maybe plotting behind my back. And the Lord would be glorified because we would live out his very image in its glorious Trinitarian fullness. And I will close with a benediction that Paul gave to the Corinthian church. In 2 Corinthians 13, 14, he said, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.